Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 969 is where it starts. And if you uh, don't own a Bible or you need a Bible, feel free to take one of our Bibles with you. This is our gift to you. Uh, And we have been walking through, or as Glenn likes to say, crawling through the book of Luke. And so we are in chapter 16, starting in verse 1 today. Last week, we walked through probably one of the most popular parables, the most known parable of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son. This week, we move into a parable that is little known and very difficult to understand. It's the parable of the shrewd manager. It's a parable that really at first glance, uh, it almost seems that Jesus is encouraging you to be a thief and to steal. But of course, he's not. Uh, He's using this example of a guy who's so passionate, so devoted to his his own interests and his own survival that he's willing to sacrifice his own integrity to get what he really wants. And Jesus is using this as a lesson that we ought to have that same kind of passion, not that same kind of morality, but that same kind of passion for eternal things. And if we truly believe what Jesus teaches, it should cause us to desire to leverage all of our resources for things that will last for eternity. And so this is a message on money. And it's always uncomfortable for me to talk about money. One, it's just awkward. But also, I think in our day and age, it's, well, and rightfully so, we have a hard time trusting churches and other nonprofit organizations. There's just been too much uh, thief, thieves and, and money that's been wasted and manipulated, use. Uh, but here's the thing. We can't really avoid talking about money, especially if we're going to walk through the gospel of Luke. Jesus talks a ton about money. In fact, 11 of his 39 parables in the gospels, he's talking about money. He talks about money more than he talks about faith and prayer. He talks about money a lot because it's a hard issue. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart lies also. It's also a worship issue. You're going to see in today's passage that he, he says that you can't ter- serve two masters. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve money. So listen, even if somehow Mercy Hill inherited $20 million tomorrow and we had more money than we knew what to do with, we would still have to talk about money because it's a hard issue. Today's goal is not to convince you to give more money to Mercy Hill. Our goal this morning, and our goal every single Sunday, is really for you to give more of your heart to God. That you would make him your first and your best. And so, let's dive into this passage. It's a difficult one for us to understand. First, you have to understand the context of what's going on here. And if you look at verse 1, he starts the verse off by saying, He also said, to his disciples. And that word also connects this parable back to the previous chapter, chapter 15, where he shares those three parables, the parable of the the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And remember, Jesus shared those parables as a response to the Pharisees that were grumbling at him because he was hanging out with these sinners and these tax collectors. And he's, he's pointing out that Look, you ought to be people who celebrate when the lost are found. And remember, at the end of the last parable, he really gets on the Pharisees, and 
he, he says, look, you're just as lost as those sinners. You're just, you, you are just as guilty as they are of wanting the father's stuff, like the fatted calf, rather than the father himself. So you're just as guilty. And so Jesus moves from those three parables and he turns to his disciples to teach them something about money. But notice, look down at verse 14. Look down at verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. And so Jesus is talking directly to his disciples, but he knows that the Pharisees are listening in. And so he speaks loud enough, I think purposely, for them to hear it. And so let me give you a basic outline of this parable because it's really difficult to understand. And then I'm going to say a few things so that you can fully appreciate it as we walk through it. In verse 1 and 2, you're going to see the circumstance of the story. This dishonest manager, he gets himself in a mess. Uh, He's about to be fired. And then in verse 3 and 4, you see him really thinking to himself. He's contemplating, okay, how do I get myself out of this mess? And then verses uh, 5 through 7, you see what he actually does to get himself out of the mess. And then verse 8, his master responds to this dishonest manager in, in really a surprising fashion, which leads to the rest of the passage where Jesus shares several applications for his disciples. So that's the basic outline, and it's important for us to note that Jesus, he intentionally makes the, the main character, kind of the hero of this story, a bad guy. Uh, this is not the first time Jesus does this. Think about the Good Samaritan, right? And he does this on purpose, uh, but he's not praising dishonesty here. And, and you'll see that in the applications that Jesus gives his disciples. And, and my prayer is that we would learn something ourselves that would have an impact on eternity. So let's pray and then we'll start walking through this together. Father, once again, I, I plead with you that your spirit would direct me, that I would speak truth, that you would help protect me from saying something that is false. I pray that our hearts, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would truly understand what you intended in this passage And that we would not just see what we want to see, but we would see your glory in it and we would be moved to it, that our our perspective would be changed because of it and we would be more focused on eternity than the here and now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit as we walk through this challenging passage. Verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so just like today, it's not unusual for a wealthy person to have like a financial administrator, a financial manager that he hires to take care of his books. And just like today, it would be a great crime for that manager to misuse the funds that have been entrusted to him. There's somebody else's wealth. Verse 2, and he, this rich man, called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the accounts of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And so the rich man, of course, fires him immediately, and he tells, look, you need to turn in an account of your books. He wants to know how much money this guy has stolen from him. And so now, what will the manager do? He's in a pickle, right? 
But look at verse 3. And the manager said to himself, and so he's talking to himself now, what, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, in other words, I'm getting fired, I will not, I, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. And so in other words, I, I don't have any other skills to make a living on, and, and I'm too proud to be a beggar on the street. So what other options? I've got no other options. Well, he starts to think of a plan, verse 4. And so I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so literally welcome me. And so here we see his only concern is for his own well-being, not his master's. And he needs a way to impress others so that when he loses his job, he'll be able to find another one. So look what he does in verse 5. So summoning the masters, his master's debtors, so the people that owe his master money, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And so he says to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So not a hundred, but 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. You see what's happening here? He's going to the people that owe his master money and he's giving them like an extreme discount on what they actually owe. Uh, He's swindling his master out of a little bit more of his money. And his hope is that by doing them a favor, once he loses his job, they'll owe him. And when he needs a favor, they'll be obliged. Now, this is where Jesus throws in a, a shocking twist. Jesus loves to do this in his parables, right? to get people's attention. The, the master learns of the manager's scheme, and you, you would assume that the, this master would be furious at this guy who's stealing more of his money now. I mean, you'd think he would put a hit out on him or something, or at least call the cops. But no. Look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In other words, the master sees that his financial manager was stealing his hard-earned money, and instead of getting mad at him, he says, you know what, that's pretty smart. That was, that was pretty wise. Nice work. I think Jesus has got their attention now. now that, that would have shocked especially the Pharisees. Why would the master commend the dishonest manager? Well, for no, reason, no other reason than Jesus wants to make a point. He's trying to get their attention and teach a valuable lesson about money. So listen to what he says next. It says, for the sons of this world, which is, that, that's the unbelievers. Sons of the world is another uh, phrase for unbelievers. Are more shrewd or wise, smart, in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, believers. And so he, he's saying that uh, the, the, the unbelievers are, are more wise and the way that they deal with this generation to get what they want than, than believers. And so, I'll give you an example. Have you ever had one of those moments like you're watching Shark Tank or maybe some of these YouTubers that are making millions of dollars and you're like, man, why didn't I think of that idea? That's so simple, right? I, I was just reading a story about one of these YouTubers uh, yesterday. That in, uh, it was, I think, two, yeah, 2002. She actually, she got caught ch- shoplifting at JCPenney's. Uh, she ends up uh, 
having to do like, she's supposed to do 40 hours of community service. She gets busted. Uh, she doesn't do it. She ends up in jail for 30 days. Well, she gets out and she does uh, turn her life around. She ends up going to college and uh, becomes a, a chemistry teacher in high school. She marries a guy, has a kid. And then in 2015, she does something that pretty much every parent does on almost a daily basis. She takes a video of her four-year-old son playing with a toy. And she begins to post these videos of her son reviewing toys on YouTube. And maybe you've heard of her son's name is Ryan. Uh, Ryan's World is a YouTube channel that now has 30 billion views, 20 million subscribers. In 2018, he banked $26 million. And now he has his own toy line at Walmart. And I'm thinking, why did I not, I mean, why didn't I think of videoing my kids to make millions of dollars? Well, here's why. As a believer, making millions of dollars is not my first priority. That's the point that Jesus is making here. If you're a believer, you're not going to be wise when it comes to worldly things like being able to swindle other people out of tons of money. And that's especially true if, if like, you've been raised in the church. Uh, I, I crack up at some people who, um, and, I, and I really enjoy it actually, when they come up and they're almost apologetic because they've got this boring testimony. I've, I was raised in church. I never did anything bad. I, I, I never got in trouble. I pray my kids have that testimony. Okay, that's a good testimony. And so now Jesus here, he uses this parable, though, to, to teach some valuable lessons. Look at verse 9. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right, what in the world is Jesus saying there? That's probably one of the most confusing passages in this whole parable, maybe in the Bible. So is Jesus really saying that we should literally be, be like this shrewd manager and use like money that we've stolen or cheated to get to, to gain friends? Uh, maybe he's saying like we ought to be like uh, uh, Robin Hood, right? Steal from the wealthy and give it to the poor or something. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Uh, this is what Jesus is doing. He's encouraging his disciples and us to invest in eternity. Okay, notice how he says, receive you into the eternal dwellings. He talks about in heaven that he's going there to prepare a place for us, right? And that we're going to have rooms, that we have eternal dwellings. And so uh, there will be a day where we will, those who believe and trusted in Jesus, will be in heaven and we will invite one another into each other's eternal dwellings. And so he, he's talking about invest in eternity. If you're taking notes, that, that's point number one underneath the uh, applications. Invest in eternity. Jesus is saying, be shrewd, be wise with your money in this lifetime so in the lifetime to come, your new friends will receive you into their eternal dwellings. And so a good financial coach today is going to tell you, don't just make plans for the next 30 days, make plans for the next 30 years. Jesus is saying, don't just make plans for the next 30 years. Make plans for the next 30 million years, is what he's saying. Your Hearst won't be pulling a U-Haul. Okay, maybe you've heard that before. Uh, it, it, here's an illustration. Let's, let's say you were a northerner living in the south at the end of the Civil War. And you've got a business, you, you've made quite a bit of Confederate money, you've amassed a bunch of Confederate money, but you realize the war is about over, and you realize the North is about to win, and so your Confederate money is not going to be worth a whole lot anymore. And so what do you do? Do you 
continue to amass Confederate money? No, of course not. That wouldn't be wise. That wouldn't be shrewd. You would cash it in for U.S. currency. It would be senseless for you to amass currency that is no longer going to be used in the near future. That's what Jesus is getting across in this parable. The way you use your money is a window into what you truly believe about eternity. Uh, Jesus taught a very similar passage in Matthew 6 where he exhorts his followers to lay up treasures in heaven. And so how do you do that? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? You do that by investing in things that will have an eternal impact. Uh, I, I love being a part of a church where God has raised up so many leaders that are very intentional about having an eternal impact on people's lives. I mean, everybody from Mercy Kids to, to the youth to the, our MC leaders to what's going on in Mark 12, our worship team, we have people that are passionate about investing in eternity. I'm thankful to be a part of that. If you're a believer, Jesus is saying we ought to leverage every ounce of our resources for things that will last for eternity. And so whether you give to Mercy Hill or whether you give to another organization that has an impact on eternity, God is calling us to be even more shrewd and more wise with our wealth than the world is by investing in eternity. Now Jesus has a a second application. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? In other words, heavenly riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And so Jesus uses this parable of a bad guy again to teach us a really valuable lesson here. Application number two, Jesus wants us to be faithful in the small things. And when we're faithful in the small things, he's going to reward us with true riches, eternal riches. Uh, This doesn't really get talked about very often, but I, I think it's helpful for us to understand this passage and really give us some motivation to obey it. Listen, there's a difference between salvation and rewards in heaven. Let me say that again. There's a difference between salvation and rewards in heaven. Your salvation was paid for in the past. Your rewards will be given to you in the future. Your salvation is freely given. Ephesians 2, right? By grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. Your rewards, though, in heaven are earned. Your salvation, it can never be lost. Once you've been adopted, you can't be unadopted. God promises to persevere you through his spirit to the very end. But your rewards, according to 2 John verse 8, can actually be lost. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So salvation is the same for all believers, Romans 3.22. Rewards in heaven differ between Christians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Salvation is about God's work on behalf of humanity. Rewards in heaven are about our work for God. And so belief, your belief, what you trust in, determines your eternal destination, but behavior determines 
your eternal rewards, what you're going to have once you're there. And so some might argue, well, if you have that mentality, if you're looking forward to a reward as a motivation, won't that cause you to have like a legalistic kind of spirit or attitude? Well, evidently Jesus didn't think that because all over the place Jesus is encouraging his disciples and motivating his disciples by reminding them of their eternal reward, which ultimately, what is our eternal reward? To be with God forever. Uh, Luke 14, 12 through 14. Uh, actually, verse 13, starting in verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid, when? At the resurrection of the just. Matthew 19, 21. Go and sell all of your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And so rewards are, are promised to those who endure difficult circumstances while trusting in God, uh, Hebrews 10, 34 through 36. Uh, they're also to those, rewards are given to those who persevere under persecution, Luke 6, 22 through 23, uh, for treating our enemies with kindness, Luke 6, 35. Uh, in Matthew 19, Jesus promises a reward in heaven that's going to be a hundred times of what you give. That's a 10,000% interest. And so he constantly is reminding his disciples of the eternal reward that will be earned. And so when it comes to money, there, there's really three different types of people when it comes to money. Uh, you've got your spenders, right? Uh, and if you're a spender, you tend to look at money as your source of satisfaction and, and enjoyment. Uh, th then you've got your savers. Uh, savers tend to look at money as their source of security and safety. And it, it seems like there's an unwritten rule that you always marry the opposite, and you drive each other nuts because of that, right? Um, but Jesus doesn't commend either a spender or a saver. Jesus commends in this passage you to be a steward. Uh, a steward doesn't look at money as their functional savior. They, they don't look at money as their, their source of satisfaction or their security. They are freed. And this is God's heart for you. When he talks about money, God is, he's not trying to be a burden on you. He's trying to free you of the love of money so that you will experience more joy in him. And so a steward's freed from the love of money because they recognize that God owns it all. And we're just called to be faithful managers of his money. A steward asks the question, what would God want me to do with this money? A steward that's always looking to manage the money in a way that suits his own, the owner's best interest, God's best interest. And so a steward always knows that this time to manage God's money, it's not going to last forever. Uh, there, there will be a point in the future where we'll have to give an account, just like in this parable. We'll have to give an account for how we've managed the, the master's resources. And so Jesus says, be faithful in the little things that God has graciously given you. God pays great attention to the little things. He's counted the number of hairs on your head, numbers them. He cares for the lilies of the field and the sparrows. He knows when one, one single sparrow falls. And so what we do with a little time or a, a little money or a little talent speaks volumes to God. And so God, God's going to reward those little acts 
of obedience. God, God will reward the child who gives the money that he's been saving for a video game to a missions offering. God will reward the teenager who has kept himself pure despite all the temptation. God, God's going to reward the, the wife who tenderly cares for his aging husband who's suffering from Alzheimer's. God's going to reward the, the mom who's raising a child with a disability. God's going to reward the, the wife who is suffering through a difficult marriage. He's going to reward those who are suffering while trusting him and those who have helped those who have been suffering. He doesn't have to reward us, but he wants to. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Last application. Give God your first and your best. Look at verse 13. Give God your first and your best. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, Jesus says this exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. And it makes a good point that uh, preachers often say the same things over and over. And so when I do that, it's not that I'm losing my mind is I'm just trying to be like Jesus. <laughs> he, uh, he said things and he repeated things when they're important. And Jesus is concerned about money because like we said before, it's one of the, it's one of the primary indicators of where your heart is. Uh, and notice Jesus doesn't say that you should not serve both God and money. He says you can't. You cannot serve both God and money. It's impossible. The point is, you will always, you're always going to love and worship and serve something or someone supremely. In other words, there can ever only be one number one in your life. And Jesus has no desire to be second. He doesn't want to play second fiddle. And so this parable, Jesus is saying, he's asking you to ask the question, where's your treasure? Who's your master? Who do you care about most? Who do you love most? Where do you look for, for your satisfaction and your security? That's your God. He wants you to give your first and your best. And remember, you can always tell how valuable something is to you by how much you're willing to give up for it. And again, Jesus obviously values us a whole lot. He's willing to give his own life so that we could live eternity with him. And so as we enter into a time of communion, if you're a guest with us, uh, we celebrate this every, every week. If you're a believer, we encourage you to celebrate with us. Uh, it's a time to reflect it's time to be reminded of the, the cost that Jesus gave so that we could spend eternity with him as we think about the, the blood that was shed and the, the, the bread is his body hung on the cross for us. And as you're, I don't want you to just go through the motions. Uh, during this time, I want you to reflect. And here's some questions to reflect on. What does the money that, and the resources that God has 
allowed you to have of his. What does your money reveal about you? What does it tell you about what you truly believe about eternity? What does it reveal about your heart? What does it reveal about who you worship? And what would it look like for, in your life for you to give your first and your best? What would it look like for you to be faithful in the small things today? And then finally, how can you leverage the resources that God has loaned you to have an eternal impact? Whether you're a kid who maybe has $5 because your grandparents gave it to you for Christmas, or you've got so, money, so much money you don't know what to do with. God has called us, God has given us more than we need because he has given us himself. He has given, maybe it's for you, it, it looks more like uh, I need to figure out how to give the, the gifts that God has given me because he's made me creative. He's given me some talents and I need to manage those really, really well so that I have an impact on eternity. And so it's not just about money, it's about the heart. Let's pray that God would move our hearts right now. Father, once again, I, I thank you for your grace and I thank you for this difficult story and I pray that, uh, that we would be mindful of how much grace you have given us so that we would live our lives fully devoted for you. And so during this time, help us to reflect on where we are at, where our hearts are at, what we're worshiping most, where we're trying to find our security and our satisfaction and help us find them fully in you. You are worthy of our worship and you satisfy us like nothing else. We look forward to the day where we will spend all of eternity worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.